And today, if you would take your copy of God's Word, we're going to reside in 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 18, it is a lengthy passage that is to uh, capture our attention today, so I'm not going to try to read the entirety of the passage and then come back. We're just going to move through this this morning, uh, but I want to begin by sharing with you something that I had read from a particular author over the course of the last few weeks who gave a pretty good assessment of today's culture in America. He says, the students of American history know that James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States. He was elected to office in 1817 and best remembered for what became known as the Monroe Doctrine. So I'm sure many of you history buffs, y'all know all about the Monroe Doctrine, which was basically a doctrine that said America uh, does not want to, be in, to involve itself in any of the European wars. In the last few decades, he says, that we associate the name Monroe not with James Monroe, the president, but with Marilyn Monroe, the actress who died a sad death. Because on one occasion, Marilyn Monroe was asked if she believed in God. And this was her answer. I believe in everything. A little bit. This described the new Monroe Doctrine for America. Believing in everything, but just a little bit. He writes, The new Monroe Doctrine has become the basic principle of American culture. People do not want to be intolerant so they believe a little bit of everything. A majority of Americans believe in God, the Bible, Jesus, the power of positive thinking, the basic goodness of humanity, luck, alien life forms, and checking horoscopes every day. The only way to believe all of these things at the same time is to adhere to the Monroe Doctrine, believe in everything just a little bit. Today we're going to look into the life of Elijah and an event where he challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And we are not going to look at the Monroe Doctrine today, but I want us to look at the Mount Carmel Doctrine this morning. The Mount Carmel Doctrine, and I want us to see how Elijah comes face to face with those who would say, I just believe a little bit of everything. And he does not leave it there. He comes to this place where he would say, if God is God, then follow him. And if he is not, then go follow something else. So today we're going to look at the Mount Carmel doctrine. If you'll remember where we were in the last few weeks over our study in 1 Kings, you'll remember that Elijah was public enemy number one. He had came to Ahab by the word of the Lord to tell him that a drought was going to fall on the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom called Israel. This drought would be an ultimate threat to Ahab's kingdom. It would cause his economy to crash. It would cause his life, livestock to perish. It would cause the crops to burn up. And uh, because of this, Elijah and his wicked queen uh, Jezebel hated Elijah, or Ahab and his wicked queen, queen uh, uh, Jezebel hated Elijah, and they branded him public enemy number one, and they forced Elijah to run into hiding. God moved Elijah down into the Jordan Valley where God took care of him by a little brook. God sent the ravens to feed him food every morning and every evening, and God provided for Elijah. 
But over time, the scripture tells us that the brook dried up. You know, the drought was very severe, and the once bubbling brook and running brook was nothing more than a dried up riverbed after about a year and a half of Elijah staying there. God told him to go to a town called Zarephath. Zarephath was about a hundred or so miles northwest of the brook Cherith. It is a location that is in right next to modern-day Beirut, Lebanon. So God tells Elijah, you go to Zarephath, and there you're going to find a widow lady, and she's going to take care of you. This little widow lady who was poor, she had nothing. God supernaturally moved in her life. And every day she would go back to what she thought would be an empty meal barrel, and every day she would find additional food that was available to care for her, her son, and for Elijah. So that, too, lasted for about another year and a half. So Elijah at this point is well into three, three and a half years of this devastating drought, which in turn caused a devastating famine. That brings us up to chapter 18. In the first paragraph of chapter 18, Elijah is told to go find Ahab and they're going to have a meeting. And God tells Elijah to get Ahab to call together all the prophets of Baal and meet him at Mount Carmel. So if you're taking notes today, the first thing I want you to remember or to jot down is a great confrontation. And that's what you're going to see transpire in verse number 17 between God's man Elijah and this wicked king. You'll remember in chapter 16, I believe it was, the Bible says that Ahab was more wicked than all of the kings who came before him. There was none that could hold a candle to Ahab when it came to wickedness. So there was going to be a showdown, if you will, between Elijah and King Ahab. It was going to be a great confrontation. So notice verse 17 says, It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Are you he that troubles Israel? Now remember, they hadn't seen each other in some three years now. They hadn't saw one another since Elijah came and said there's going to be this three-and-a-half-year drought, and Elijah had gone into hiding. But now, after this drought is beginning to wind down, they meet each other, and the first thing Ahab says to Elijah is, Ha, you're that old troublemaker. I remember you. Look Look at Elijah's response, verse 18. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed Balaam. Do you remember when King David sinned against um, God when he had an affair with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed? The Bible says that the prophet Nathan came to David to have a confrontation, much like what we're reading about here. Nathan comes to David, and he tells him a story about a wealthy landowner who has many sheep and many possessions, many lambs, many livestock. And then he says there was one poor man who had only one little poor lamb. That's all he had in his possession. And this wealthy man who came to town, when it came time to prepare um, a meal, instead of taking from his own livestock, he killed the one little lamb that the man had and used that for himself. And he says, what should happen to a man like that who would be that cruel? King David was so infuriated, not knowing that Nathan was talking about what he had done to Bathsheba and Uriah. David says, a man like that ought to be killed. Nathan said, David, you are that man. You're the guilty party. 
So here in Elijah's life, when he meets Ahab face to face, and Ahab says, oh, you're the one who troubles Israel. Elijah said, no, it's not me that troubles Israel. You're the man. You're the one. Because you and your fathers have totally abandoned the commandments of God. You have totally violated the Word of God and the law of God, and you have totally abandoned God, and you had substituted worship of God with these false gods called Baal or, or Balaam. When the Hebrews came into the Promised Land, the Canaanites had inhabited the land, and the Canaanites were Baal worshipers. Baal was known as the fertility god. Baal was known as the one who would give life to the crops, who would be able to allow people to reproduce, who would be able to cause the rain to fall and the sun to shine. And there were about 70 different deities in the Canaanite pantheon of gods. And Baal was the primary god that they worshipped. There were figurines that were bought and sold and made and uh, set on the, uh, the shelves and the tables of people's homes. They were carved in the trees. They were carved in the stones. And Baal worship was simply a part of life for the Canaanite people in um, Palestine. But when the Hebrews came into the promised land, the Bible says they were to rid the area of that. But instead of doing that, Ahab went right along with it. In fact, Ahab marries a woman named Jezebel who lives only about eight miles or so from this widow of Zarephath in a little town called Sidon. Again, it's in modern-day Lebanon. And her father just happens to be the king of that place. He is the Sidonian king. And she is a fierce worshiper of Baal. And when she gets married to Ahab and she moves down into Israel with him, rather than Ahab pushing back on all of the false worship, he embraces it. He promotes it. He lets Jezebel just kind of have the run of the country. In fact, Jezebel has some 400 prophets of Baal that come to her home that sit around the table there in the presidential palace and in kind of a religious ceremony of idolatry, they are worshiping the god Baal. So Jezebel hated the Hebrew prophets. In fact, if one prophet spoke out against her, he was risking his own life. The Jewish people had fallen so far away from God, so far away from what he had commanded. Because listen, the very first commandment, what's the first commandment, church? You shall have no other gods before me. You remember that? The first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So rather than ridding the culture of the gods that the Canaanites had established, Ahab just embraces that, builds shrines to it. You know, gods can really be anything that we put before the one true God. Our time, we could make an idol out of that. Our possessions, we could make an idol out of that. Another person, we could make an idol out of that. Anything that we devote more energy and more love and more devotion to before God is an idol. So Elijah has this great confrontation with Ahab. And he says, I'm not the one that troubles Israel. You are, because you and your whole family have abandoned the commandments of God. And now look what you're embracing. And that moves us from the great confrontation to the great challenge. This is what Elijah says to, to Ahab. Go get all your prophets and meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown. I said in the first service this morning, I was driving down the road this week listening to the radio. And uh, Greg, Lowry, uh, Greg Laurie was preaching. 
And I love to listen to him when I'm, in the radio, when I'm in the car at that particular time and have the radio on. He was preaching from this particular text. And the title of his sermon, if I remember it correctly, it was The Showdown at the Carmel Corral. So I thought I might plagiarize that this morning. The Showdown at the Carmel Corral. Elijah says to Ahab, go get all your prophets. And I want you to come to Mount Carmel. And there on Mount Carmel... We're going to have a showdown. What he was really saying is, Ahab, on Mount Carmel, I'm going to show you the Mount Carmel doctrine. Now, let me put the map up that we used last Sunday to kind of orient us as to where we were. You'll remember that when Elijah was hiding from, uh, from Ahab and Jezebel, he was in the uh, Jordan Valley. Uh, if we can get our map up, Miss Sherry. He was in the uh, Jordan Valley, and uh, by that little brook, Cherith, uh, somewhere located right in this area here. This is, uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea down here. So right in this area was the little brook Cherith. When God moves Elijah from the brook Cherith, he travels this hundred miles from here north to the city of Zarephath. That's where he meets the widow there who cares for him with the mill barrel that never ran empty. Well, now for this, this confrontation and this challenge, God says to Elijah, move from Zarephath, and I want you to come to this area, and I know you can't see the font size there, but that is Mount Carmel right in this area. When we go to Israel in a couple of months, you're going to be able to go to Mount Carmel, and you'll stand there, and you'll look down into the valley of Armageddon, which is just right here where the final battle of mankind will be fought. So there on Mount Carmel, Elijah says, we're going to have this great challenge, and I'm going to reveal to you the Mount Carmel doctrine. It is in modern-day Haifa in Israel. The mountain is roughly about 1,700 feet high, and the Bible basically says in, in the Bible days, whoever controlled Mount Carmel controlled kind of the geographical region from a military perspective, but also whoever controlled Mount Carmel spiritually. Remember they used to build these altars on high places is what the Old Testament had, had to say about that. So whoever controlled that high ground and built an altar there kind of directed the spiritual temperature and the spiritual direction of the nation itself. Now remember that God had supernaturally provided for the Hebrews every step of the way. He led them out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. He parted the Red Sea so they could walk on dry ground. He fed them manna from heaven. He led them by a pillar of a fire by night and a cloud by day. They parted, God parted the Jordan River, let them come on into the conquest of Canaan land, divided the territory up uh, for them. In every way, God provided for them. But in just a few decades... It seems as though they had forgotten everything that God had provided for them and all that he had done for them. And they had kind of pushed God off to the side and they had begun to, to, to embrace this Monroe, Marilyn Monroe doctrine. That I believe in everything, but just a little bit. So Ahab comes to meet Elijah at this challenge on Mount Carmel. He's got 450 prophets of Baal. His wife Jezebel's got 400 pro uh, prophets. And they all come together for this showdown against one man, God's man, Elijah. Look in verse number 21. It's 850 against one. And Elijah says to them on Mount Carmel that day, verse 21. He came to all the people and said, How long 
halt you between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And all the people answered him, not a word. Now listen, there were three groups of people who were there that day. There was King Ahab, Jezebel, and all of the, uh, all of the prophets of Baal. And I can see them dressed in their royal garments, their royal robes. They're riding in jewel-studded chariots. They have uh, trumpeteers going ahead of them uh, to play all of the pomp and circumstance that you would expect for a king and queen in that day. That was the first group who was there. And then there was one man, Elijah, who was God's man. And then there was a group of people whom the Bible kind of describes as just folk like us, just regular, ordinary, everyday people who were there to watch this great conflict that's going to unfold on Mount Carmel. I want you to circle the word. If you see it in verse number 21, if you carry the King James, it is the word halt, H-A-L-T. Some translations render that word waver. As Elijah looks out over all the people, here's his message. He said, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. And if he's not, then go worship Baal. Now, look at that word halt or waver. It comes from a, a, a word that literally talks about a person who, who has one leg that is shorter than the other. And that person rocks back and forth. Just like that. That's the imagery. When it comes to your walk with the Lord, he said, how long are you going to walk or rock back and forth? How long are you going to waver between these two opinions? How much longer are you going to embrace the Monroe Doctrine that says, I'm just going to believe in everything a little bit? Elijah says, that don't work. You're just rocking back and forth. And how long are you going to do that? If God is God, worship him. And if he's not, you just go ahead and embrace these gods of Baal. Now listen, lest we think this is just an ancient story that is relegated to biblical history and has no biblical relevance or practical relevance to our lives today, I want you to know today in American culture, we are embattled over the forces between good and evil in our nation. Now I want you to know, I want you to know, friends, that the devil, he is, seems to be working overtime in our world, but certainly in our nation right now. And I want to read to you, and I debated with my own self about sharing this with you, but you can go online, you can read it for yourself. But as Elijah confronts Ahab, I want to read to you today an open letter that was written by a pastor in America. His name is John MacArthur. He pastors in California. And John MacArthur wrote an open letter to the governor of California and I just want you to listen to the letter that he writes. So if you'll just tune in for just a moment, I'm just going to read this to you. It's kind of lengthy. I've edited it just a little um, because of time's sake, but it is very important. Just listen to this and see if you don't see and hear maybe the Mount Carmel doctrine that is being challenged before Ahab those many centuries ago. MacArthur writes, Sir, Almighty God says in His Word, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Scripture teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and punish evildoers. You have not only failed in that responsibility, you, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers and punishing the righteous. 
The word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil, yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident as the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism, and another malignant expression of human misery that stem directly from the corrupt policies. I don't need to itemize or elaborate the many immoral decisions you have perpetrated against God and the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and to heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. In mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children children whom he creates in the womb. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of killing unborn infants. You used the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech from Leviticus 20. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. Psalm 50 speaks to people who pervert the word of God for their own sinful ends. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recount my statutes and to make my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. You will stand in the presence of a holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and you see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, what will be all the clever rationalizations and political talking points, what will they avail you then? And by then, it will be too late for any remedy or redemption. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that, that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in Him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness as it is your duty instead of undermining it as has been your pattern. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous hear him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation for the master, John MacArthur. Now listen, that is a great challenge. 
And that is a great confrontation here in our day of 2022. And as you take it off of the page in the Scripture from Mount Carmel and you put it right here in America, it is obvious that our culture is following the Monroe Doctrine and not the Mount Carmel Doctrine. But Elijah challenges Ahab. And he says, you bring all of those prophets together and you meet me on Mount Carmel and we're going to have one final showdown. And it must have been an incredible day that day. All of the news outlets were present. CNN was there and Fox News was there and MSNBC and NBC and ABC and CBS and all of them were there. And anybody who was anybody was there that day to watch this showdown on Mount Carmel. Elijah all by himself against 850 prophets of Baal. You see the great challenge, but now look at the great conflict. If you're listening, say amen. Look at verse 26. Elijah tells them, by the way, he says, you take, he tells Ahab and, and, the, and the prophets, you take a couple of bullocks, slay them, put them on an altar, put wood around them, and then we're going to call fire down from heaven and ask your God, Baal, to consume these sacrifices. Verse 26. They took the bullock, which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal. Look at this. From morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no answer. And they leaped upon the altar that was made. Here it is all day long from morning until the time of the sacrifice. That was about a six-hour period of time. The Bible says that they were moving around this altar where they had placed the sacrificial animal, and they were calling out to their god, Baal, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, send the fire and come and consume this sacrifice and demonstrate to all of the onlookers that you're the one true God. And yet the Bible says they received no answer. It was quiet. So their intensity gets greater. If you look at that word leaped in the King James, some translations say they, they danced around the altar. And Elijah, being the good sport that he is, look what he says in verse 27. Elijah mocked them. And he said, say it a little bit louder. He said, maybe your God is, is on a vacation somewhere. Maybe your God is asleep. Some Bible scholars say it was an idiom that was used that he's actually gone to the restroom. Maybe your God's gone to the restroom as he's indisposed right now. So if you'll yell a little bit louder, maybe God will hear you. Your God, Baal, will hear you and he'll come and consume this sacrifice. So he's really kind of mocking them and making fun of them. Verse 28, they cried aloud. They get worse in intensity. They cried aloud. They cut themselves after the manner with knives and lancet till the blood gushed out of them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Notice this. There was neither voice nor any answer nor any regard. With all of this intensity as they're crying out to their God, the Scripture says there was no answer. Now I want you to underline that. There was no answer. You see that again if you'll go back to verse number 26. There was no answer, nor were there any who answered. Why, why did Baal not answer? It is because Baal was a Canaanite deity made by the hands of God, by the hands of man. And he had no power whatsoever. You know, the Bible says that there is not 
a pantheon of gods that we can just choose from and embrace the Monroe Doctrine and say, yeah, I believe everything just a little bit. I believe a little bit of this, and I believe a little bit of that, and I take a little of this, and I take a little of that, and I just kind of build it myself and make my own faith. You know, the Bible says in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, there is one Lord. Don't miss that, church. One Lord. And there is one faith There is one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There is not a pantheon or a cornucopia or a plethora of gods that you can just pick and choose from and say, I'll take this and I'll take this and I'm going to believe in everything just a little bit. No, the Mount Carmel doctrine says, if God's God, serve Him, live for Him, love Him. And if He's not, then go do something else. You say, well, Pastor Darrell, but weren't they sincere? Of course they were sincere. They prayed, they prayed longer than Elijah prayed. They danced and ran around the altar. He never did anything. They cut themselves. He never did any of that. They were showing utmost sincerity, but they were sincerely wrong in where they had placed their hopes. So now it becomes Elijah's turn. He takes a series of stones and he rebuilds this altar of God. He digs a trench around the altar. And again, all of this is in the text, and just for time's sake, we're not reading all of it. But he digs a trench around the altar. He places the wood there in the center. He he puts the sacrificial animal on it, and then he orders something kind of unusual. He says to Ahab and his men, go get buckets of water and just pour water all over this sacrifice. Because what had happened in, in the past, that there were times that these prophets of Baal, as they would offer some sort of a sacrifice in order to convince the people that Baal was the one true God, they would put like hot coals in the bottom underneath the wood. And then as they would fan that, then the flames would erupt and they would claim that Baal did that. Elijah wanted to make sure that everybody who was looking that day knew that nothing like that was about to take place place. So he says, you go get some water. They go down to the Mediterranean Sea and they bring it back, all of these buckets of water, and they pour it all over the, all over the sacrifice, all over the wood. Then he says, do it again. And they do it again. And he says, do it again. And they do it again. And the text says that so much water that it was all around the trench. And again, he wanted to make sure that they knew there'd be no tricks here. This would be a work of God. Look in verse number 36. It came to pass At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day. Now this is Elijah's prayer. It's a threefold prayer. Just follow with me there. He says, Lord, I want you to answer me so everybody will know that you're the one true God. Lord, answer my prayer so that you will know, that the people will know that I'm a prophet who speaks for you. And answer my prayer so that the heart of these people will be turned back to you. You see, that's what we pray for our country and our culture. For a national revival. Amen, church? That the hearts of our people would be turned back to God. You know, the Bible says, If my people called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We are in desperate need for a healing in our land today, church. And we pray that the hearts of people would be turned back to God. That's Elijah's prayer. It's not a long prayer, very simple, straightforward prayer. So you see the great confrontation, the great challenge, the great conflict. But finally, is the great confirmation. And we're going to close in about four or five minutes, the great confirmation. How does God confirm what Elijah is doing? 
Look in verse 38. As Elijah prays in verse 36 and verse 37, look at the confirmation. The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. Look at this. And even licked up the water that was in the trench. Now you would think that Elijah would call down rain from heaven because it hadn't rained in three and a half years. Everything was burned up like baked concrete. But he doesn't. He calls fire down from heaven because it was going to be a fire of God's judgment that would come and consume the sacrifice. And while I'm here, just let me say this. You know, on the cross of Calvary, when Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, and he hung and he bled and he died for my sins and for your sins, when he died, it was like the fire of God's judgment just fell from heaven, and he consumed it in his body. And he who knew no sin, listen, the Bible says, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And him who was perfect and holy and pure, the only one who ever lived, bore all of our sins in his body so he would give us his righteousness and take our sinfulness and we could be reconciled to God the Father. What a wonderful Savior we serve. Amen, church? So Elijah calls down this fire from heaven. And the Bible says that this fire falls and it consumes the sacrifice. And all the people that day in the following verses fall on their faces and acknowledge who the one true God is. And this is how the story closes. In verse number 41, after the fire has fallen, the sacrifice has been consumed, folk recognize that Baal is not God, but God Jehovah is God, and that they had rocked back and forth in their decision long enough, and now they understand and believe. Here's what happens next. Elijah says to Ahab, you better get out of here. Because it's getting ready to rain in the likes that you've never seen before. And Ahab takes off to Jezreel, down back in the Jordan Valley. In fact, Elijah outruns him, you can read that in the text, to get to Jezreel before this rain starts. But nonetheless, he is, uh, Elijah and his servants are on Mount Carmel. And Elijah says to his servant, Go look out over the Mediterranean Sea. Tell me if you see any rain approaching. The servant goes, looks out over the Mediterranean, and he comes back, and he said, Elijah, there's not a cloud in the sky. And he says, well, go look again. So the servant goes back at, there at Mount Carmel, and he looks out over the Mediterranean again. Not a cloud in the sky. He comes back and tells Elijah, well, do it again. Poor servant, right? He does it again. Nothing. And again, nothing. And again, the text said seven times. In verses 41 and following, seven different times the servant goes and looks over at Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean and he sees nothing until that seventh time and he comes back and he tells Elijah. Now listen, and we're going to close. There is a cloud that is forming up out of the sea about the size of a man's hand. Now that's not a very big cloud, is it? especially after a three-year drought. There's a little cloud out there that is forming about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah is like, well, you better get ready because here it comes. And you'll see on verse number 40, 42, uh, verse 44, and it came to pass at the seventh time, he said, there's a little cloud out to sea like a man's hand. And they said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your char- chariot and get down so the rain don't stop, stop you. And it came to pass in the meantime, while the heavens, now look at this, was black with clouds and the wind, look at this. And there was a great 
rain, which would put to end the three-and-a-half-year drought that Elijah had prophesied would happen to Ahab's kingdom when he first came to him all the way back in chapter 17, verse number 1. Now the drought was over, God had proven himself faithful, and the abundance of rain would begin to fall, which tells us this, that the Mount Carmel doctrine is, if God is God then serve him. And if you will serve him and honor him, then the showers of blessings will come in your life and upon this nation. In fact, the Bible says there in, um, uh, in the Old Testament, he says, if you will walk in my statutes, now listen carefully, and keep my commandments and do them, I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Do you know our country has a problem with the Monroe Doctrine today? It is not a political problem, and it is not a problem with politicians. Our culture has a spiritual problem today. And the only thing that can rectify that and solve that It's for people to do, as Elijah said, and have their heart turned back to God. That's what we desperately need. Listen, I don't want a politician determining my worldview. I don't want a Hollywood actress or actor to determine my worldview. I don't want a sports athlete to determine my worldview. I want God to lead my thinking, to lead my life, and to direct my steps. Amen, church? And we go to Him And we follow Him, and we follow His Word, and we follow the Mount Carmel Doctrine. If God is for us, who can be against us? If you believe in Him, don't wobble back and forth anymore. Follow Him and commit your life to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for Your Word. It is just amazing. Every time we read it, how relevant your word is and how it speaks to us with such authority. It is because it is not written by men, certainly scribed by men, but it is your inspiration to us, Lord, that has been preserved over these centuries, and we would still know that your word is absolute truth. Help us, Lord, as uh, individuals, as a nation, uh, as a country, Lord, to turn our hearts to you and to follow you, and that we believe that, yes, indeed, you are right for whatever is wrong in this old world of ours. Take this invitation, and then this time, God, would you call people to yourself today? There may be a person here today that's never made their decision for Christ. Help them to know how much you love them, how much we love them, and how much we would love to see them ask Jesus to come into their heart and lives. Maybe others who want to unite with our church family today, just take this invitation, use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.